Good evening, everyone. Can y'all hear me okay? Is this thing too close to me? People say I talk too fast and too loud, so maybe if you give me some little down pose, I won't do that. But I'm uh, glad to be here tonight. As you guys found out this morning, our beloved David Shannon is on vacation, a well-deserved vacation for the next couple of weeks. And it's wonderful to have Philip this morning speaking. What a wonderful message it was to hear about the stain of sin and how Jesus can lift up. That stain off of any garment that we have and off of our soul and how we can be cleansed of this blood for forgiveness. And uh, next Sunday, uh, the 25th, it's going to be our pleasure to have John Michael lead both services, uh, the morning service and the evening service. So uh, wonderful times. Sometimes it's good to get David out of here, I guess, every once in a while. And one less Alabama fan around the office, too. So it's kind of a, a plus for some of us uh, soul UTK people in there. Uh, well, turn with me in your Bible tonight to Nehemiah chapter 8. And it's on page 435 in your pew Bible. I learned a lesson from Philip this morning. Something you don't study very often, you better give a pew, uh, pew Bible page number. I was quizzing David Burka, uh, one of my close friends, one of our elders, about what I ought to speak on tonight. And he said, y'all do something you're passionate about. But he said, you need to speak slowly and not be in too big a hurry. My daughter can contrasted that by saying, how long is your sermon going to be tonight? And have you made it a little bit shorter? She asked me just a few minutes ago. Well, something I'm passionate about is the Word of God. And something I'm very passionate about as well is studying the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, and so I want to start out tonight in an interesting situation in Nehemiah 8. And any time we read the Bible and study the Bible, we need to understand what we're reading. The context of what we're reading, the time frame of what we're reading, the culture in which this is going on in, the place in history. Uh, and like in the New Testament, why the letters being written. Uh, to a certain church, like in the case of Paul's epistles or the epistles of John or James or Peter. Uh, and when we look at here, the background of what we have here is a very interesting situation in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, at this time, we're looking at here at the time when they are coming back to normal. Uh, prior to this, actually about this time, about 140 years prior to this, the nation of Judah had been carried away into captivity by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, in 586... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian ruler, destroyed the temple and the walls of Jerusalem and laid them to waste and took the remainder of Judah into captivity. Some of them have already been hauled into captivity in Babylon way back in 605 BC. When we look at here, something has happened that's been a change. The Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persians in about 536 uh, BC. Cyrus the Great allowed the Jews to return to their homeland. And they got back there and they began to rebuild the temple. The temple that Solomon had built in all its glory had been raised to the ground by the Babylonians. And they rebuilt the temple under the governorship of Zerubbabel. And that was dedicated by 516 BC. So after that time, a lot of people read Ezra and Nehemiah and things that happened very quickly following the rebuilding of the temple. But in actuality, it was about 60 years later, about the middle of the 5th century, that Ezra felt compelled to return to Judah and teach the Word of God back to the people that were there. We're talking about a generation that had lost touch with that, who had left their homeland. The temple had been rebuilt 70 years after its destruction. And here we are 60 years later. There was nobody left alive that had been alive when they were taken into captivity. About 13 years after Ezra came back, Nehemiah was appointed governor by Artaxerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, and came back and rebuilt the walls. Right after that is where we see this reading. And we're going to read in Nehemiah 8, is something about what Ezra did in chapter 8. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, and then I'm going to skip forward a little bit and read 8 through 12. Nehemiah 8, verse 1. 
And all the people gathered as one man in the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for that purpose. We skip down to verse 8. It says, They read from the book from the law of God, translating to give sense so that they could understand the reading. When Ezra got done reading, some other folks came up there, some other Levites came up uh, and tried to explain the word to people uh, in that. And we'll talk about that in just a second. In verse 9, we see that Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Something else that was going on at this time that we see this seventh month was a very busy month for the Israelites. They had gotten away from this because they didn't know the law of the people. But on the first day of the seventh month, the Torah, or the Hebrew Scriptures, the first five books, command that a festival be observed. It's known as the Feast of Trumpets. Today, the Jewish people call it Rosh Hashanah. It is the beginning of the Jewish New Year, the religious New Year. The agricultural New Year begins in the spring, which is 14 days before Passover on the first month of the year. And understand we're not talking about our Gregorian calendar. We're talking about a lunar system of calendar. This is the seventh month of the year. On the tenth day of this month is another commanded day for the Jewish to observe in the seventh month. It's the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur. It is the day in which the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and offered a sacrifice up for the sins of the people. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, they're commanded to observe Sukkot or the Feast of Booze or Tabernacle to remember the time when they wandered in the wilderness. All these things were commanded in the book of the law of Moses that Ezra came up and reminded them. So I don't think it's by coincidence that the Lord led Ezra to go back and talk to these folks on that day, that first day of the Holy New Year for them and thinking about that beginning of that religious month that they had there. So it's a very important time. Ezra read all that from early morning and some things would say first light until midday. How many of us would last a sermon that long? And it says that the people were attentive to the reading. They were thirsty for that reading, thirsty to know what had not been known for 140 years to these folks is to somebody get up there and read the law in their language. Probably at this time, the reading of ancient Hebrew would have been very difficult because they would have learned Aramaic, uh, the language of the kingdom where they came from. So Ezra was knowledgeable in that, and we see that the Levites helped translate for that. But something interesting happens when they hear this word of God. They're weeping. And Nehemiah consoles him and says, this is a holy day to the Lord. Don't mourn and weep. This is a holy day to the Lord. Let's celebrate as we should. Uh, the celebration was blowing of trumpets when they had it in that time. So we think about, why were they weeping? And when we think about that, we get to the subject of what I want to talk about tonight. Is how does the Bible make you feel? How does the Bible make you feel? And I'm not talking about an emotional sense 
of just people that are swept over by emotion at the reading of God's Word. But what does it mean to you down deep in your soul? How does it truly make you feel? It'll make you feel a different way if you're a Christian and you've been given the Holy Spirit and you've been baptized into Christ than it would if you're somebody perhaps that's here tonight and has not obeyed the gospel and become a Christian. And we'll talk a little bit of that as we go through. And I thought about why were the people weeping? I said perhaps some of them were hearing the word of God for the first time. You know, we take for granted there's a Bible in every hotel room and we got four or five uh, at home. At this time, there wouldn't have been any private ownership of Bible unless you were very wealthy. It would have been a scroll kept somewhere that you only heard from uh, when somebody read it. You wouldn't have had your own personal scriptures. What about sadness for the years they didn't have the law and had not been able to fulfill God's will for all that time? We know they'd rebuilt the temple and resumed sacrifices, but they didn't have the entirety of the Torah to go by. They may have even been living contrary to God's laws and not known it. And now they were aware of it, they may have felt ashamed and guilty. A lot of people are that way these days. They may hear the word of God for the first time and then realize through the good news of Jesus Christ that they were not living their lives in accordance with God's will. Nehemiah tells them not to weep, for it is a holy day to the Lord. So let's get into talking about how the scriptures make us feel today uh, when we hear it and how they ought to make us feel. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As we begin to look at several scriptures, those of you who have heard me teach, I hope you don't get too tiresome tonight, but we are going to look at several places in God's Word to illustrate our point. Because otherwise it would just be Tim Martin up here talking and not God's Word uh, that we ought to be looking at. So we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In a minute we're going to read verses 8 through 10. One of the things that we may encounter as we read God's Word, perhaps we read sections of it for the first time, or we reread sections of it we've read before, that may not have been applicable to us at the time, or for whatever reason, they can make us sorrowful. They may make us sorrowful. And that's not just for people who aren't Christians. A lot of times we look at the Bible and we think, well, just people that aren't Christians ought to be made to be sorrowful when they read the Scriptures. But we're going to look at a biblical example of a letter to Christians whose previous letter should have made them sorrowful. We look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We look at verses 8 through 10. Paul is writing back to the church in Corinth uh, we remember in 1 Corinthians, he spent a lot of time straightening out some issues that were going on uh, in that Greek church in Corinth. He says, for, I for I, though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of this world produces death. Paul is addressing Christians in the church. He was addressing Christians in the church when he wrote the letter 1 Corinthians that we have now. He obviously intended, that Holy Spirit did through Paul's pen, to make the people at Corinth sorrowful for the things that they were doing wrong and had them change their mind and go back to it. When we read the scriptures as Christians, we are not immune to be made sorrowful for the things that we may not be doing right uh, in God's eyes or following God's commandments. And we should constantly search the scripture for that way. But we hope that that's not the only thing that God's word does for you. We ought to be astounded at the word of God. We ought to be utterly astounded at the power of the word of God. And I think about in Acts. You know, today I feel like sometimes we as Christians feel like we need to dress up God's message a whole lot with a lot of doctrine, a lot of complicated issues. When we look in the book of Acts, 
and the starts of these first church, they were simply preached the good news of Jesus Christ. And people were converted. When Peter preached that first gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost, the people heard the message of Jesus Christ. And I know I talked fast, but the other day I kind of read Paul, uh, Peter's sermon out loud to a stopwatch. And I talked as slowly as I possibly can, which may not be very slow. But I talked as slowly as I could. I even put a southern drawl on my accent to woe me down a little bit. It took me less than three minutes to address that sermon in a way that I would get up and address it publicly. If we look over the second gospel sermon, it takes only 16 verses by our verse count, uh, which is less verses than that, happened, than that previous on day of Pentecost. But we know that Pentecost, people were pricked in the heart. Uh, and that word means to be pierced violently. That's what that word means in Greek. It's pierced violently, not just pricked like the doctor pricks your finger to take blood. It means to be pierced violently to the soul. So the reading of the gospel and 3,000 souls being added to the church and the success that Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas and others had in the spread of the gospel and the growing of the Lord's church and the fact that that seeds that were planted have grown into what we have today in the church and has expanded to many nations ought to be astounding to us. It's not through the power of men that that happens. It's not solely through the power of money. It is through the effective preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's how people come to know God. I think sometimes we're at a disadvantage because people know too much about religion in the United States and we feel like we have to combat that when we teach them about the good word. Maybe we ought to take a back step every once in a while and just share the same message that was shared there at Pentecost. Paul mentioned 65 times in his letters the gospel and the preaching of the gospel and the power of the gospel. So it's not an accident uh, that that's a powerful thing. We should be amazed by that. And we should be amazed by God's creation. We know from the book of Romans that the Gentile world could be no God and look at the amazement of his creation. But instead they worship created things. They didn't know the law. When we look around, I think about Job in Job 38 when after Job and his friends get through with all that big back and forth talk that they do, finally God steps in and straightens the wagons out with them. And we look at Job chapter 38. We can be in awe of God. And what he says just in a few verses in Job chapter 38. When we think about God's word, we're not just reading some words written down by men. We are reading words that were spoken through the spirit of that which created the entire universe, that rules over all things in the universe, and things that we know that we're intimidated by, like Mother Nature, right? We men have built great buildings and great cities and control, try to control rivers and the things that we do, but a tornado or hurricane can bring us to our knees and the power of Mother Nature. Uh, the power of floods, as we witnessed a couple of years ago here in the Nashville area. Who controls all those things? God said to Job and his buddies here, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and set a bolt on its doors. And I came and said, Thus far shall you come, but no further. And here shall your proud waves stop. Which one of us can stop the power of the mighty oceans, or make clouds, or do the things that are in God's power? We ought to be in awe of God's power when we read his word. That will make us respected and know it. We ought to be edified and built up. Jesus concluded his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 with some very important words. 
Perhaps a lesson we don't read very often because we learned it in Sunday school, if we were fortunate enough to be raised in Sunday school. We read about the person who built his house on a rock and the person who built his house on the sand, about foundations. It's interesting that Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount by saying in Matthew 7 and 24, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the house winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Jesus is saying, you can hear my words, and you can act on them. You can be edified and built up. You can make changes in your life. You can make yourself a stronger Christian. You can go out and do those things for God and for your neighbor that the Scriptures command us to do. You can hear my words and act on them, and you'll be as the man who built his house on the rock. And the troubles of life will come, and the storms will come, and the trials will come, but your house will stand. Or you can be like someone who merely hears the word and doesn't use them, and therefore your house is built on a weak foundation. We can be edified and built up on that. Romans 10 and 17 says that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. I don't know of anywhere else in the scriptures that it tells us that faith comes from. It comes from hearing the word of God. And we talk to the folks when I go in the jail a lot about that. God's not going to come miracle his word into your head. He's not going to appear to you in physical form. He's not going to come and speak to you like he did with the patriarchs because he's already given us perfection. 1 Corinthians refers to that. He's given us perfection in His Word. And that's how God's Word says that faith will come. That trust in God, that verb that faith really is. We can be trained and prepared. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and 16 and 17 are some verses we may read very often. And as you're turning there, we'll think about those. A lot of times we look at these verses and we think about them in the context of how we should go and teach others that we look at Scripture and say it's a tool for us to go rebuke and correct other people and straighten out things that they are doing wrong. This is not a good thought, uh, only a, the thought if we only think about it in that way, because Paul was writing to Timothy, a Christian, about issues in the church. And we look and it says in 16, all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. It is for the man of God. And when we think about that, we can read Scripture, and it can be used in our own lives for correction, for teaching, for training in righteousness, so that we may be equipped for good work. We don't just have to hear it preached from up here at the pulpit, do we? Is Scripture only useful when it's spoken aloud? You can read it for yourself and achieve those same things. Paul gives no restriction to Timothy that that verse is just applicable when it's being taught in public. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 2. I had to include a little Proverbs because my boy David Burker likes Proverbs and I, he likes to read Proverbs. So since he gave me a suggestion that led to my sermon, I figured I'd go over to it. Go to Proverbs chapter 2 and verses 1 through 6. Scriptures can give us wisdom. And we see in Proverbs 2, the book of Proverbs is a whole lot about wisdom, Ecclesiastes and Psalms are sometimes called wisdom books. But we know that God's Word can give us wisdom. And there is a great deal of difference in this world between intelligence and wisdom. 
There are some very intelligent people that act like fools in this world, that don't learn lessons from the things that they encounter in life. Uh, and we need to understand what wisdom means. Wisdom means knowing what happens, the consequences of actions, thinking through what you do because you think about the outcome of it. That's something sometimes young people struggle with and sometimes older people struggle with that same thing. I can take you up and show you about 300 people uh, off the bypass in Wilson County that are still not thinking wise, uh, even though that they're older. In Proverbs chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. I wonder sometimes if we pursue the wisdom of God's word like we pursue wealth and silver and the things of this world and material possessions and fame and popularity, I wonder how much more wise we would be than we would be rich with money. Because God's word says that if we pursue that like we do those things we treasure for in earth, uh, there's people that travel the whole world searching for sunken treasure and hidden treasure. How far do we go to know God's word and seek its wisdom? How far do I go uh, myself in doing that? It can make us hopeful. God's word can make us hopeful. And when God uses the word hope in the New Testament scriptures, it is not meant for one of those wait and see how it works out kind of thing. Like typically this word world uses that word hope. Like I hope this happens. Kind of like we're wishing it would happen, it might happen, there's a chance that it might happen, but it's not a surety. When we look at that Greek word that's used for hope in the scripture, it is an expectation. We expect that God will deliver on his promises. And why do we expect that? Because we look at God's word and we see time and time and time again the example of God giving a promise on how he's going to do things and fulfilling that promise. Even when we talk about the time that they were conquered and hauled into captivity, the, Israel, the nation of Israel was hauled away by the Assyrians and that southern nation of Judah as we talked about hauled away by the Babylonians. God told them that that would happen. He said, you can adhere to my commandments, you can teach them to your children, you can do the things that are right, and I will bless you. I will protect your borders, I'll make you a prosperous nation, but if you don't do those things, I won't protect you. You will be conquered and carried away by other nations and destroyed. And that's what happened when they disobeyed God. We see all through that hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, when people did and they acted on faith with God, that God delivered on their, His promises. We think about Abraham and what he was given in a promise. God fulfilled those promises. He fulfilled the greatest promise He could ever give in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, uh, to die on that, on that cross one day. There's hope in the good news of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1 and 23, it talks about the gospel giving hope. And that pure gospel is that Jesus came and died for our sins. He was resurrected. And that through him we can have a home, in God, a home with God in heaven one day. And that good news and that salvation is from the punishment uh, that we deserve in that. We'll conclude over in 2 Kings. Turn to the book of 2 Kings. We're going to go back in time a little bit prior to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and the deportation of the Jewish nation uh, off. And we're going to look at King Josiah. King Josiah was a righteous king. When we read the books of First and Second Kings, we see some examples of some good guys, 
like Josiah and Hezekiah. We also see some examples of some really bad guys. And Josiah doesn't come from good lineage. His grandfather Manasseh and his grandfather, uh, his father Ammon were evil kings. They did what was detestable in the sight of the Lord. They let the temple fall into ruin. They did away with the things that were supposed to be done in the temple. When Josiah came to the throne, he came as a very young man. And one of the things that he did in his rule is he ordered that the temple be cleaned up and that be restored. In the process of this, one of the priests discovered a copy of the scroll of teaching, which is what that word means. We see the word law translated in the Old Testament. It typically is the Hebrew word Torah, which does not mean law, but it means teaching uh, or instruction. Now, there is, a, there is law within that teaching, but it was found a scroll of the teaching, if we read the Bible literally, to see what it says. And this righteous ruler, Josiah, heard these words. He said, read them to me. And they read them to me. And what Josiah did when he heard those words is he stood up and tore his clothes. He was in a sign of anguish at hearing what horrible things that his predecessors had done to ruin the nation of Israel, contrary to what God's law was. He realized that there was great transgressions that Judah had committed against God. He asked the priest, go and ask God what's going to happen because of these things. And the priests go and they ask that question. And guess what God tells them? He tells them that punishment is coming. There is destruction coming upon you. But he says something special about Josiah in 22, 18 through 20. He had just got through telling me that they've forsaken, my, they've forsaken me for foreign gods. They've chased after the wrong things. But he remembers Josiah. He remembers the conviction and repentance that Josiah felt about the things that really weren't his fault. He felt terrible for the place he lived in and he felt terrible about other people's actions and what was going on. It says in 18, God says here, But to the king of Judah, who sent you to the inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. So your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring upon this place. So they brought back the word to the king. How did Josiah react to this? In 23, he says, Then the king sent, and he gathered to him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. So Josiah takes the lead. He goes back and gathers all these people up and reads the word of God. And because of the promise that the Lord gave to him, the king says in verse 3, the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to carry out the words of the covenant that are written in this book. And all the people entered into that covenant. This reading of the word of God was powerful. It was powerful to Josiah. It convicted him of the things that were doing evil. And when God told him, I'm giving you the opportunity, I'm going to bless you because you were repentant of what your people did. You were saddened because of the sins of the nation that you lived in. I'm going to spare you the sight of this destruction. You'll go to your death and sleep with your fathers. And you won't experience these things. And Josiah made a covenant with the Lord and all the people made a covenant to walk in his ways and to obey his commandments. 
uh, in doing those things. It's kind of the same deal that's offered to us today. How are, how are you feeling at the reading of the Word of God? How do you feel when God's Word is read to you? Does it make you want to tear your clothes? I don't see anybody stand up and tearing their clothes, and I don't mean for you to do that literally. Does it hurt you so bad that you're wrought with pain and you're ready to weep? Is that how God's Word makes you feel? If you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, God's Word can tear you up when you read it and you accept it as true and you recognize that you're leading your life contrary uh, to that. We look back in Romans chapter 1 before we get to our invitation. I promise I'm coming to a close. In Romans chapter 1, We see some powerful preaching here by Paul when he writes this letter to the church in Rome. The Holy Spirit guiding him to say in Romans 1.13, He said, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, to both wise and the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul's anxious to go back to Rome to find some fruit, not the fruit to eat, but the fruit that the preaching of the gospel brings. We are under obligation as Christians to everyone to take that good news out. And why? Just like we talked about how awesome it was and how powerful it was in the book of Acts. Why are we under obligation to preach it? Because God's word said it is the power of salvation to those who believe. Have you heard the words that are in this book? Have you come to know that it's sorrowful, what it's leading you to say? Do you feel sorrow that leads to repentance like Josiah? Do you want to enter into a covenant with God? There's a covenant available for you. The New Testament really should have been said the new covenant. The new deal is that I'll save you from your sins because I sent my son Jesus Christ. You can come and be baptized. You can repent of your sins. Confess his name. Be baptized. I'll wash away those sins. And like 1 John says, if you walk in the light, you'll be continually cleansed from those sins. I'll offer you that deal is what God's offered us. That's the good news. But there's a side of that deal like Josiah had. We have to walk in His ways. We have to obey His commandments. We have to do His will. We have to love Him and we have to love our neighbor. And we have to carry the good news of Jesus Christ to other people. If you're ready to enter into that covenant tonight, if you're ready to take that deal, which is the best deal you'll ever get in your whole life, because we all deserve to go to hell. None of us deserve to be in the presence of God. But Jesus said, no man comes to the Father except through Him. And we can't. He's sitting there, right hand at the throne of God, interceding for us Christians. We pray to Jesus. We pray through the name of Jesus Christ because He takes our prayers to God, and the Holy Spirit translates them into words we can't even understand. It's the best deal you'll ever be offered: to be absolved of the punishment you deserve, to be justified and found not guilty before God. Perhaps you're here tonight and you have put on Christ in baptism, but you haven't been living according to His words, kind of like maybe the people of Israel that wandered away from the book because they didn't read it or they didn't have it to pay attention to. If you're feeling any of those things tonight, come forward and as we stand and sing, and we'll be glad to help you in any way as we can.